Welcome everyone to episode six of the MBE Enterprise podcast, where we talk about money, business, and entrepreneurship with some of the brightest business minds I know. On episode six today, I am joined by entrepreneur and founder of Convertica, Gabriel Riegert. Gabriel, how are we doing today? Living the dream. I'm, I'm happy to be on this podcast today. I'm really excited to have you, Gabriel. I think it's going to be a, a good episode for everyone. And to start off here, I want to start similar to how we always do. Take me back to kind of the origins of Convertica. Was it always Convertica? Uh, what are some What are some of the processes that you've had to go through on this journey to getting from starting to where you are kind of at now with it? I love the question. I love answering this. So it originally started... I was a salesman for a implement equipment. So like lawnmowers, snowblowers, and I sold them for years. I'd worked there probably eight years at the time. And they came out with this new lineup of snowblowers. It was called a 60 volt lineup. Basically it had lithium ion batteries in it. It was like the hot new thing. Everybody coming in, they wanted the 60 volt lithium ion product. And I would sell it hand over fist multiple times, multiple times. And basically, I would see the service side, but I would also sell it. And customers would tell me how environmentally friendly they were being when they were buying this 60 volt product. And I just knew that was completely not true because the service side of it, those batteries either end up in landfills, dumpsters. I mean, where they ended up at a place I worked, it was a shelf. They just sat there and there was like hundreds of them sitting there. So I decided to take it upon myself. I was like, okay, Gabe what can we do or like who can we contact so they can get rid of these lithium ion batteries i went to the hennepin county recycling center made a bunch of calls there they gave me a list of about 25 and they said reach out to all of them they should be able to help you recycle this lithium ion battery and so after calling every single one of them emailing them emailing all of them basically i got an answer of well we can take them but we don't recycle them and so I was curious, I was like, okay, you don't recycle them, but you take them, where do they go? So I went down this like long rabbit hole of like going from one company to the next company. And then it like ended up with this obscure company that's like in Canada that, that takes them. And I'm like, man, that is such a long chain to get these lithium ion batteries to be recycled. No wonder they end up in dumpsters and landfills. It's just easier. And so basically I took it upon myself. I... I like chemistry. It seems sort of interesting. Did a lot of research and I actually took these lithium ion batteries that were on a shelf and I said, can I take them and potentially try and recycle them? So I took this chemical process at the time and I'll, I'll just put it out there. I have zero like chemistry background. So this was just like throwing a holy hand grenade in there and seeing if it worked right. And, and so the first couple of times it was uh, not ideal. We'll put it that way. Um, we reclaimed very, very little raw materials from these batteries, but over the summer months, refining that process again and again and again, using different chemicals, getting some engineers expertise on how to actually like get the raw materials out. Um, we got it up to 98.3% of the raw materials that we can recycle. And so that was just sort of like the the i would say process that it went through why i started it and sort of where we are today we started as chemco 
went through a lot of business competitions, got a lot of feedback, and they said, ditch the name. It's not that that uh, great. And there's a lot of plastic companies that have that Chemco name as well. But um, So we switched it to Convertica, and that's where we're at right now. We have our LLC established, and we're doing um, trials now to uh, get a mask sort of perfection of our process. So you're sort of caught up to date with that. There you go. Yeah, Gabriel, you mentioned that 98.3% like re- reclamation rate, I think that's a word. Yeah. Um, yep. To give us some perspective on that, it, how good is that compared to kind of maybe like industry averages or what just your few competitors are doing with it? That That's a great question. So out of the competitors that we have, and there's there's four main big ones the average out of all of them is around 88% recycling of these lithium ion batteries. So we're doing much more than they are with that 98.3%. Um, and there's still a lot of innovation to happen with that technology, but overall we're beating all of our competitors. Now we just need that commercial scale um, that comes with a good technology. If it's small, it's all right, but when you get that scale, it gets a lot better. So. Definitely. And another thing in case viewers may not know for sure, what I know I had your uh, partner, George, on the podcast on episode two, and we talked about this a little bit, but what are some things that lithium ion batteries go into? Like, just how popular are they today, Gabriel? Well, I will say this. It's probably in my computer that we're, at least I'm recording on right now, probably on the computer you're using. Um, It's in anything from like a mouse to a remote to a phone to cars to even lawnmowers, snowblowers, goes into some windmills, solar panels, you name it, because lithium ion batteries are the best battery out there that can be mass produced. I mean, there's better ones, but they cost way too much. Glass batteries, silicon batteries, but lithium batteries are used in basically everything that has a battery in it nowadays. So yeah, and especially with the uh, the increase in uh, electric vehicles, the need for the lithium-ion batteries and their raw materials has just increased tenfold, and it's got to increase. Yeah, for sure. I think I think that's definitely a, a very likely situation is that that use is going to continue to increase. Another thing I want to ask you about right away: what are some of the challenges that you? your team has faced so far. Um, I think anytime you're talking a new entrepreneur or a new startup venture, there's always probably 10 to one in terms of challenges and, and, and failures potentially versus successes that you actually come to. So what were some of those more specific and uh, larger scale challenges that you've had to face so far? I think the biggest one that hits me right off the bat, and we're still developing our technology, but It's the research that goes into our proprietary process because our business hinges on that proprietary process. And what comes with that is a long journey of research, proving it, making sure it is correct with large scale of data, lots of batteries, lots of controls and uh, different experiments that go into it. That's one big part of it that I think is a, is a huge challenge, at least for our team. Um, of course, we're, we're working on it with our, our uh, chemical engineer, um, but research, having that, because once you have that, that's basically a golden ticket to pop, 
potentially a venture capitalist to say, here you go, here's our plan, we're ready to implement, we just need scale. And they'll be like, okay, is your technology, have, is there research behind it? How's that all coming together? And if you have the research, it's a big hurdle that's out of the way, at least in, in our specific case with Convertica. Um, and of course, you have many more than that. I think building a team is extremely important. Um, I think doing it by yourself, I, I just don't, it's hard to do. It's extremely hard to do. And when you have a team that is passionate about what you're doing, it makes it a lot easier to do. Um, I know our team, me, George, and our, our chemical engineer, it's a small group as of yet. We have advisors, engineers from different companies that are coming in and telling us this would be the best layout. This is the best chemical to use. Um, I think when you have the passion behind it, that's, uh, that, that's what makes it work well. Um, so team is a part of a, a challenge, getting good quality people. Um, technology is a part of it. I would say those are the two, probably the, the biggest, biggest, biggest things up to this point that I can, that I can really think of. Yeah. Yeah. So you bring up that, that team aspect. And I think this is something that comes up a lot in the yeah. entrepreneurial and startup space. I know we've talked about it before, um, on a couple of episodes and people's opinions on, on kind of the solopreneur versus, um, building a team. Right. And you said, of course, in your space, it's, it's absolutely critical to have that team and have that well-built team. Um, everyone knows their roles. Everyone has specific roles, things like that. Could you give us maybe some more insights as to more specifically why you think that building a team is so important? Because I, I, I know that it's realistic to build like smaller scale companies solo, of course, but when you're talking a company like yours, I mean, the potential there is absolutely massive. So the importance of not only building a team, but putting the right pieces around you within that team is, is of the utmost importance. And if you could, if you could speak to that a little bit um, more, Gabe. Yeah. And especially with our, our, well, my industry being recycling, I'm, I am no chemical engineer. We'll put it that way. I, I put the process through, we got the really bare bones sort of of it. Um, but those meaty details that you need, I don't have the expertise for, and it's, this is the time, like I have the idea, I have the vision. I, I know where we want to go, but I don't have the specific technical abilities that let's say a chemist would have with the actual chemical composition of how these materials interact with each other or like a chemical engineer, how can we scale this chemistry like equation on a mass scale? It's just some, some skills that I just, I just don't have and that other people do. And of course, like you said, you could do a, a small scale operation by yourself. I, I did do that, but if you really want to make a huge, especially with my company, if you, if you want to make a big impact, you got to have a good team and they got to know like what they're doing. And I think having other people to join you, like I said, chemistry person, chemical engineer, um, George, my, my business partner, he helps lay out that vision and what we want our, our company to look like in the future. Um, I think that would be extremely hard. I'd be extremely stressed and uh, I, I would have no time for fun. So, so yeah. Certainly. And that's something that when I had Chad on just a couple of episodes ago, 
that's something that he brought up specifically for you. It's the chemistry side of it. For him, it was the tech side of it. He's like, I, I had these interests in, in this thing and I, I had this vision kind of as you're bringing up, but I didn't have the skill set required to actually get it done. And a lot of people see that and they think, then I just can't do it, right? Like a, like a tech startup, for example. I've thought this way um, personally as well. Like, oh, I have this idea for something, but I am not the best coder. I've started primitively trying to learn it because I think it's important, but I by no means am fluent in, in code uh, of any format. So it's like, I, I just can't, I can't do that. I can't feasibly do it. I can have a picture in my head, but I can't do it, but I can do it with a team and with the proper connections. And that's why networking as a whole is so important to give you the opportunity to have those connections to build large scale companies and not just like we said, smaller operations, which are impressive in their own right, but it's just not quite the same. Um, building off of that, Gabriel, I know that you started this, you said you kind of got the bare bones process done. I feel like I've heard stories about this. I want to clarify exactly how, did it have something to do with like in your garage or, or how exactly did this uh, stem and, and some of the maybe failures in that process specifically as well? Yeah. Um, so I, I'll put out a blanket statement here. If you're dealing with chemicals, know what you're dealing with before you do it. All right. So we'll, we'll put that out there before I tell you some of the, some of the failures. Um, so yeah. I did this in my garage, in my back garage, um, next to next to the '76 Duster that that I'm restoring, and I was like, you know, let's uh, let's let's go ahead and try this chemical process. Me not knowing much about chemistry, these chemicals, I was just like, don't have to wear any respiratory gear. I'll just put on some coveralls, you know, some rubber gloves. We'll be fine. And so when you're dealing with uh, specifically with acids, and um, when you're dissolving some cathode and anodes. Basically, when you're dissolving batteries, um, it can have a potential to make you pass out, which I learned cutting into these. Um, while I had all the chemicals that were needed in the process, I didn't have the right protective gear. So I'll set the scene for you. So basically, I'm in a box that's closed. There's no ventilation here at all. Maybe a little crack under the door maybe just a little bit. And so I'm like, I got the batteries out of their casings. And now all I have to do is I just have to cut into them. And then I take them, put them in a bucket and dump the acids in the, the right chemical, you know, chemical equation to go in there. So I'm cutting into them. Sparks are going everywhere. And I'm like, oh, this is probably fine. And then I'm like, man, little, little lightheaded, but that's bad. I just stand outside for maybe like five, five, 10 minutes. And I'm like, okay, let's go back into it. Then dump the batteries and their inner casings into this bucket. We dump the acids in and you see this like foam start to rise from these buckets. Like, oh, it's working. It's great. And it, and it was working. Um, and then there was this like gas that was coming off of it. I'm like, okay, don't know what that is, but uh, you know, whatever it is, I'm probably fine. And so again, I'm in this box, no ventilation. And I'm like, man, I am really, and then boom, I'm like sitting on the floor and I'm like, oh, it, yeah. So basically I passed out. And uh, so I got up, I opened the door and I sat outside for a while. And I was like, I think I need a respirator. Um, after that, I did a lot, a lot more actual 
looking at the safety requirements of the chemicals I was dealing with, looking at the safety data sheets, how to deal with if something went wrong. So a lot more safety was uh, put into it. Probably a couple brain cells died in the meantime, but you know, learning experience um, for sure. So yeah, yeah. I uh, I think that's definitely though the 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 perseverance and determination that really makes it really makes you an entrepreneur when you're just literally passing out while working on a thing. That's that's one of my favorite stories from people who've started it. Also, it's interesting that you say you aren't you know a chemist or anything like that, but I feel like you got pretty far for being someone who considers himself not a chemist. Yeah, I think honestly, because it was, I don't know, it was just like, I had to continue like doing it because it was something that I didn't know. And it was like irritating me a little bit. I'm like, just, just keep on doing it. You'll probably figure it out eventually. What is it that really sparked that your drive and your passion, not only for this well, actually, let's start with this in particular, because people see things every day that they're like, oh, this could be done better, you know, or this, oh, they could do this better. Like that's, it happens every day, right? But not every day does someone start throwing chemicals together to actually fix the problem and, and pass out along the way. So what do you think really sparked that that interest in, in this particular idea? Was it the the ceiling, you know, the, the massive scale that you saw the potential for, or was it something else? It was definitely the place I worked at. I'm I'm very close with the owners of the of the business and they just didn't have a good solution to it. And people would kind of, it's a combination of things. So it was I cared for the business owners. I wanted to help them in some sort of a way. But it was also the flip side that customers were coming in, they were using this lithium ion product, thinking they're really really environmentally friendly, and it just wasn't. So it's a combination in between, I saw there was a bigger like societal impact that was actually going on. And then there was people that I was directly connected to how it was impacting them. And I was like, okay, something's gotta be done here. And then there was also, this is a massive scale deal and I wanna be a part of it. So it was a combination of a couple of the different things, but yeah. For sure, for sure. Um, What? what are some, how about some individual qualities, um, qualities, skills that you think not only benefit you in in your particular case, but then also just benefit entrepreneurs as a whole. And maybe some, some skills that entrepreneurs who are struggling, um, could work on that really will separate themselves from those who succeed. You mentioned it a little earlier, but persistence, if you have persistence, you will get almost anything done. It might take a little while, but if you persist and you keep on doing it, you'll eventually, something will go right. You'll meet somebody that has the right answer or knows how to do it somehow or has been in a similar experience. I think persistence for an entrepreneur is almost required. Otherwise, you're not going to go very far, right? So that personally for me, I've done a charity race beforehand and I, I continue it throughout the years. I've had companies, I've had schoolwork on top of it, athletics, everything coming on top. You just got to be persistent. Things won't go your way every single time. They definitely won't. They, ne- they didn't for me at all. So you just have to continue and, and keep pushing through because it will get hard, but you just got to keep going when it does. Um, so that that's for me. And if any entrepreneur that I knew 
persistence is key that you need it to be an entrepreneur. The other piece of that, I, I mentioned it a little bit, but knowing a lot of people, getting connected with others, not being afraid to talk to other people and be like, I don't know you. Let's get to know this person. Um, in, in, my, in my younger years, I was very, um, I was very timid and I wouldn't want to talk to other people very, very much. And I just sort of kept to myself. And I, I realized at some point that it, you can't really do everything by yourself and you, you're going to need some help along the way. And if you get to meet a lot of good people on the way, that's, that's just a perk of talking to others. So I think biggest things, persistence, and then having a good network or being able to talk to other people and being personable is really, um, really key. You don't need to be charismatic. I mean, you could if that, that works too, but um, just being able to talk to them and have that initial conversation, have a good one. So, so yeah. I like that you mentioned that because not only is it your network that you're actually connected with, but it is being personal and, and being uh, personable and being able to talk to people because that's how you're going to build the network eventually. Like you're not just going to be born into it. You see people with good networks and most of the time they're going to be people who are good at talking to others, good at getting along with others. And that's how they eventually build it. You also mentioned perseverance and that you're going to run into obstacles as an entrepreneur or as a, as a startup founder. That is the one thing you can promise that you can guarantee is going to happen is that you're going to run into obstacles. What are some, how do you view failure? What are some uh, measures you take to try and mitigate failures when they happen, but also learn from them? And, and what do you kind of view as a failure? Because, you know, Thomas Edison would say he never failed. You just found 10,000 ways that didn't work. Right. And that's probably an important one in the industry that you're working in. But I mean, I would view failure as just more of giving up, you know, giving up before when there's still hope or not even trying more importantly. So how do you kind of look at it and, and go about and view failure as a whole? I, I agree with you there, Matt, in, in a couple of different ways. I mean, failure is giving up and not being persistent, not going after it. A another way you could, you could look at it as well is that I failed a lot along in my, my short career here as an entrepreneur. And I think that's, that's good for me. It's going gonna, it's gonna to sound like a hang in there cat poster, like generic saying, but you learn from your failures. You definitely do. And uh, I could just exemplify that through what I've learned, especially with, I mean, when it comes to how you handle finances in a company, how you know what the next best move is, because most of the time you really don't, and you're just going seeing if it works. Um, learning experiences, I would definitely, that would, yeah. How about Gabriel, your, your first entrepreneurial venture? Um, both kind of describing it and just kind of when was the moment that you knew that entrepreneurship was for you? Well, uh, I'll, I'll take you back to kindergarten. Okay. Kindergarten on the bus. I was a big Pokemon guy at the time. I love Pokemon cards. And I, I realized this was like a really simple idea that I had. I said, well, everybody wants Pokemon cards and I have a way I could get these Pokemon cards with Pokemon battles, right? And so I'd go around the whole bus and I would beat kids in, and I was a child at the time. So I'm not like a full grown adult on this bus. So kindergarten, I'm in kindergarten. 
So I'm in kindergarten and I'm hustling and, you know, doing Pokemon battles with other kids. And I would always tend to win. Well, not always, but most of the time. win. And then the kids were like, dang, I wish I had some Pokemon cards. I'd be like, I've got a whole folder full. You can look through them and 25 cents, you got a card. And so that, that, that was sort of my first um, entrepreneurial uh, venture with, with Pokemon cards on the bus. Um, I, I love that just because it was like the instant, it, something about it, being able to look at a whole space, even small as a bus, be like, people want this. I can supply that. We can make something happen here. I feel like that's like bare bones entrepreneurship. Of course, I had the uh, lawn mowing business too, but I think the one that's very um, fun is the Pokemon card. Yeah, that's all. That's awesome. There's something to be said too for beating the person in the battle and then potentially selling them the card back to them. And be like, ah, try again, but it's going to cost you a little bit. I mean, that's that really is something right there. It's funny you mentioned lawn mowing business as well because one of my best friends um, is has that entrepreneurial mind. He's a little younger than me, freshman in college this year, but he kind of got his start with just like this this massive lawn mowing business within our small town. It was kind of I feel like it was him. This might be not factual, but him and one other guy, it was like competing. They both had like forty lawns or fifty lawns or something, some crazy number that they're just going at each other. So lawn mowing seems to be the gateway to be uh to be an entrepreneur, especially from small town. But I guess I'm not sure if you're from a small town or not. Um, another thing with that though, the kind of ideation process, lawn mowing, Pokemon cards, right? There has to be an idea that sparked somewhere, and I think you touched on it a little bit with the you found a problem or you found a pain point, a need that people wanted those Pokemon cards, or people obviously need their lawns mowed. And then you thought, well, I can do that. You know, I can supply that or I, I can do that service. Um, what, what are some processes that you really think about during the ideation process now at this stage of life and moving on? And I realized this might not be for a business as a whole. I'm sure, you know, you probably have business ideas constantly and just, just things that come up in your head as a lot of entrepreneurs, I would think, do. But you're you're not shifting back and forth between different businesses. Like you're you seem to be focused on Convertica, which I think is correct, is what you should be doing. Um, but when you're thinking about ideas, you know, within Convertica, whether to expand here or whether to try this or do that or work with these people, what are some things that you go through in that not only the ideation process, but also kind of the decision making process as a whole? As far as like an ideation, how I do that usually is I, I write up a, a list of like pros and cons of what, what this would do for us, how it would impact the business, either better for worse. Specifically with Convertica, I'll give you a little example here. So mainly we're focused on the consumer for these lithium ion batteries because they're the ones that tend to you know dispose of them improperly. But at one point we did consider an idea of going straight to healthcare companies because a lot of their equipment uses lithium ion batteries, which they usually dispose of and have truckloads full of these lithium ion batteries. And so it was just thinking of what are all the possibilities, even if they're not very great. Um, being open to any possibility, I think, is a good way to go about thinking of ideas. Um, also, listening. Um, if you listen to a lot of people, they will 
I mean, they, you don't even have to ask them like what problems they're having. Usually they'll just let you know up front. Um, listening is a huge part of how you like get ideas, at least, at least myself. I mean, we could go back to the Pokemon card or we could take Convertica, which I was listening to customers and then looking at the landscape, which it was in. Um, and then actually, when it comes to making the decision, sometimes there might be a really nice, it won't be black and white. It will be nice and gray or like nice and tan. So not even, not, not even uh, a clear decision to make, right? Sometimes I've seen it in my experience that you just have to be like, well, this is the decision we're going to take because I think it has the best potential. Now, is that right or wrong? I don't know. It's worked out for me in the past. It's failed for me in the past as well. So again, there's, there's learning experiences. Go with your gut a little bit and have some good solid information you're basing that gut feeling off of, I think would be my best. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That, that fine balance, I would agree with you of, you know, data analysis, um, but then also there is some intuition involved, especially early on, right? Another thing you brought up there was the customers, getting the you know feedback from customers, have, building that relationship with your customers. What are some ways, some, some methods that you like to go about kind of fostering those relationships, building those relationships stronger and keeping those connections for the future, even if you know, you may not be working with them at the present moment, or may you may not be getting their business right away, but but keeping that connection down the road. And this one, I, I really stir around with how to go about it. But honestly, just be a, a very personal human, ask them how they're doing. Don't just be like, okay, I need Jerry to buy five donuts for me. How am I going to get Jerry to buy five donuts? Do I have to, you know, Ask them genuinely how they are. It's, it's just being like a, a normal human. Ask them how their family's doing. If they have a family, if they're like what they did this weekend, might might start with things that are small that might lead into bigger um, portions, like talking about th their family or the, the big vacation they might be going on or what troubles they might be having. But it's sort of a, it's, it's a process of them getting to know you and you getting to know them. Um, I've worked at a job where um, I've, I've called, um, cold called a lot of people and you learn from that, you learn a lot how to become comfortable with someone in like five minutes or less, how to have a good conversation and how to get them to trust you. So you trust them. It's, it's like a back and forth and it's being personable, of course. Um, and if you have a little charisma, it helps too, but yeah. For sure. Um, Charisma can go a long way, but just being personable is a really good start, right? Kind of bridging the gap now between the the pure business side of things and, and the personal side of things. Um, investment diversification. That's obviously, I know you mentioned you feel very strongly about this topic. Um, and that's obviously something that whether it's in business, whether it's in personal finance is extremely important for everyone in the world. What are some ways that you go about diversifying your investments, both maybe within the business or, or down the road with the business, and then also in your personal life and kind of balancing high risk versus low risk assets as a whole? I do. I do enjoy this question. I could talk about it for hours, but I'll, I'll try and give a nice, concise answer. 
Um, and I, I look at this a couple different ways. So I have, I have my regular college student life. I've got that. I've had a couple of internships and I'll probably get a job coming out of college. But then there's the other side, which is, I, I would say the college route is a little lower risk just because it just takes time and eventually it will happen. But then there's like the higher risk of it, which is Convertica. Can we develop this proprietary technology? Can we get the patent for it? Can we get the research down? And can we get it to a venture capitalist quick enough in order to make this whole scale happen before another company overtakes us, right? And so I see them as like two categories, one low risk, one high risk. And you just have to sort of do them both at the same time. And I also do this with my personal finances. So I don't want to work my, my whole life at a hourly wage job. So I take part of my payments that I get for working and I invest it in low risk stocks that pay a, a, a low, nicest dividend. Of course, when you have like five shares of this stock, it's going to make you like five bucks, maybe. It's, so it's not super high reward, but I know when I'm 60, 70, I'm going to be having those thousands of dollars coming in because I've done it for 60, 70 years. And so I have a cushion that way. And I have sort of the regular path towards having wealth towards the end of your life. But there's also the flip side where I've got my company where it could make millions of dollars every single year. It could happen next year. So you sort of got your high risk and your low risk, but managing them both at the same time, I think is how, when you're getting to your later stages in life, how you really achieve um, large sums of, of wealth and be able to enjoy your money in those later years. So there you go. Yeah. I think something you brought up there that it sparked kind of an idea in me um, just really that idea of over the long term, high risk plays, you know, are more likely to come out. I don't know about more likely, but over a longer term, you're more likely to have a moment where they are up big, right? And they might drop then quick, but you're more likely to have that, that moment that um, more than a zero sum game, like a positive expected return sort of thing down the road. And if you, if you know when to, you know, know when to hold them as, as the, the one song would say, you can, you can capitalize on those before they eventually maybe drop back down due to major fluctuations. And I think one thing that's interested and kind of gets into the psychology of, of humans and the psychology of risk-taking is I read it in a book once. I think it was thinking fast and slow by Daniel Kahneman, great book on psychology and, and touches on some investing concepts as well. And one of the things it talked about was if you were to, flip a coin. And if it landed on tails, you would lose a thousand dollars, right? What amount of money would it have to be for you to accept the deal for like how much you'd win on heads? So if you're going to lose a thousand on tails, how much would you have to win on heads for you to, uh, I'll take that deal. Right. And I think they said the average answer is like 2000, which, you know, seems incredibly skewed because what you would think would be, well, if it's a thousand and one, you know, or a thousand and one cent, then that's a positive expected return and you should take that. But where that comes into play and humans are actually kind of intrinsically decent at realizing is the law of large numbers, where if you were to say, okay, you're going to get 10 or you're going to get a hundred or you're going to get a thousand different flips, right? 
Well, then that threshold for how much you have to make comes down lower and lower and lower. And I think this gets into business opportunities as a whole as well. If you, if you have more money to start, obviously you have to get there somehow, but if you have more money, you're able to take those higher risk moves because you don't have to worry as much about in that thousand dollar example, if you're someone whose net worth is 10 million. Wow. You might take the risk for 1200, 1500 because ah, it's a thousand dollars. But if you're someone who really needs that thousand dollars, it's going to have to be a much higher number for you to take the risk because even though that expected return is high, it's still only a 50, 50 shot. You're either making money or losing money. And where I think this really ties into life is the idea of not, not in a stupid way, but really jumping on some of those high risk plays because what you're doing then is letting the law of large numbers work for you. If you're someone who is extremely risk averse, and they've actually done studies on this as to kind of measuring some of the more monetarily or financially successful people over time, they are less risk averse because they're willing to take higher risks because they know that while the first one might not work out, that first coin flip might not work. And maybe even the second one won't work, but then the third one does and it, and it pays off. And then the fourth one does again. And now you're way ahead, you know, that sort of concept of, of it's ba- it is balancing low risk and high risk, certainly starting out that you obviously don't want to take the high risk decision like every single time, right? You got to balance it. But knowing when to really take calculated high risk and making those decisions, I think is an extremely important, important skill to have and kind of where I would touch on that investment diversification. But I think you have a really good plan laid out as far as kind of working with those two different angles, building on them both kind of having your main plan of like, okay, at worst case scenario, I'll be here. But uh, why would I not still work on this, you know, this higher risk play to try and really have it pay off for me? So I think that, I think that's a a really good way of looking at it and and a smart way of looking at it. And going along with that, you mentioned you obviously don't want to work, you know, your entire life, right? Like you'd like to have a nice retirement, like to enjoy some things, but stay right, right in the present. How do you balance spending on experiences, indulgences with saving for the long run and uh, long-term going forward? So I, I'm very, I'm very proud of my Excel document. It's like a, it's a little budget that I have laid out and I do what I'm expected to get for the next two weeks and what it's been for like the past three years or two years since I've been working the same job. And I sort of average out how much I'm going to make for those coming weeks. And then I do a percentage that goes towards fun, a percentage that goes towards like groceries. So like what I need, what I want, and then anything extra, I dump in investments when I can. Um, And it happens every time that I can because I split it up in that way. Um, But that's usually how I do it. And of course, I would love, I would love to go out every, every single weekend and, and, and live it up every single weekend, but that's just not the case with the sort of budget that I have and the aspirations I want for my future, you know, what I want for my future time or even my weekend, right? Um, I do more heavily instead of, I get my needs covered, then I don't do as much wants and I more heavily focus on my investments just because the more investments I have, the lifestyle I can have, right? So if I want to have a Ferrari by, by 30, 
if I spent all my money going out and having a, a lot of fun during my, my younger years, then that later time period won't really won't really happen because I didn't put the money into those investments, which I should. So, yeah, there you go. Little budget. Exactly. Yeah. And, and compound interest, right? They say is the eighth wonder of the world and letting that time work for you with your investments, I think is extremely important. And I like that you, you kind of clarified that you obviously have your needs first, right? And, and then you said it's, it's kind of wants then, but it's, it's less on wants. Like in a way it's your investments next. You want to have that certain threshold. You're like, okay, I, here's my needs. Here's what I am going to invest. And then kind of like then left over, then I can have fun, but I need to make sure I still have that, that investment money building towards my future, taking a long-term perspective um, as opposed to just a short-term view on everything. Because I think that's extremely important as well. Um, Gabriel, what would you say is the most important personal finance lesson you've learned outside of, you know, maybe besides maybe balancing, obviously diversification and, and having a budget, because I think that's extremely important and maybe it is that, but what would you say maybe other than those two things that you've learned and maybe a lesson specifically? Take risks. That's the biggest thing. When you're younger, you got to take risks. I think about where I am right now and where I was like two years ago. If you take risks when you're young, then it's it's so much better because you basically have nothing to really lose. Um, especially like in my case, if if I lost everything right now, well, I just go sleep in my my parents' basement, which is not always the case for everyone. Of course, I understand that, but it, it, specifically in my case, it's like you lose all your money. Well, you have somewhere to live at the end of the day, right? Um, and taking those risks early on teaches you some really good lessons. Um, I, I know I bought this, I go to my lawn mowing company, I really didn't talk much about, but I bought this new uh, grandstand unit for my, my lawn mowing company. And it was, it was around like $5,000 or whatever. And it was, it was a nice, it was a very, very nice unit. We did lawns, took no time at all. And uh, the thing is when you don't put oil into these machines, their engines lock up and then you're basically toast. Um, that engine costs like three out of the $5,000. And so that was a good lesson to learn. It was like not taking care of my equipment correctly led to a really, really painful conversation of, did you put oil in it? And me not knowing I didn't, I didn't do that. So, um, taking risks early on, I think is a big, is a big deal. So. Certainly. Yeah. And and you brought up the fact that, you know, not everyone maybe has that situation of having a, a parent's house to fall back on, for example, living there. But one thing that you can do is learn the skills, build, build up your skill set to make yourself very employable. That's one thing that I've always thought. If you can be an extremely employable person, you know, how you have, you're a, per, you're a personable person. You are, you know, smart. You, you've learned some things that, that will help you being not only an entrepreneur, but also a good employee. If you're always very employable, then you know it, it kind of raises your floor for what the worst case could be. Because your worst case may be, well, if you can't get a job. But, but if you focus hard on being employable, then if everything doesn't work out, your worst case would be you could still get a, a pretty good job somewhere and be able to build from there. 
especially when you're young, you still have a lot of years. So I think that, I think that taking risks, taking calculated risks, once again, obviously you're not saying just be stupid, right? But, but taking calculated risks is extremely important if you ever do really want to really get ahead. You know, you can play it safe. Like you said, the, the long game, the, you know, the low risk game will get you there. But you might as well take some high calculated risks to try and have that upside potential. And yeah, other than that, Gabriel, is is there another anything else you'd like to touch on? Actually, before before we move on from that, I want to I want to touch on one more thing with that. There's a book called The Four Hour Work Week. Have you ever read it? I have not. I got it. Okay, so in that book, he talks about the worst case scenario. He talks about a lot of things by Tim Ferriss. And I think I've mentioned it before on this podcast. I'm reading it right now. And, and one of the things that really kind of stuck out to me was anytime you're thinking about a tough decision, you don't know whether to make you know A or B, you don't know which one to choose, or you don't know whether to take this risk or not take the risk. One thing he always talks about is actually exactly what you said, kind of what what's the worst thing that can happen? And actually putting it down pen to paper or maybe typing it out, but writing down for yourself in front of you, what is the worst thing that can happen if I do this? And, you know, taking out things like if it, well, I guess if it's an extreme risk, like death or something, right. But if it's not an extreme risk, barring that, he's like, what's the worst thing that can happen? You, you quit your job, you try this, you fail. And now you get the same job again, just a year later, or you, you know, work for a competitor in the same industry, right? Like you took the risk, you failed, but at least, you know, you tried. And then you're right back to kind of where you were right before that. So he's like in a lot of situations, and obviously it's a, it's a completely personal thing. Like it depends on your situation, but in a lot of them, your worst case scenario really isn't as bad as you think it is, or as you tell yourself, it's, it's kind of the idea what you're ultimately a lot of the times afraid of is the judgment that you might get from other people. But in your personal situation, the risk you're taking really isn't that huge of a risk. And you should probably take it in a lot of cases because, well, I think that's just a lesson that really stuck with me of like, you know, take the chance essentially. Like if you're going to try and build it, you, you think that your worst case is so horrible and in reality, that's the worst case scenario. So the odds of that specific thing actually occurring are just as likely as, you know, if you look at standard deviations, if we get a little bit into statistics, mathematics here, it's just as likely as a, it is extremely awesome possibility happening, right? So if you don't see it as that bad, then you're just looking at a ton of upside potential on the other end. So I think that's, that's an extremely important lesson that I guess I've kind of thought of. Calculated risks as opposed to just always playing it safe are extremely important when you factor in the law of large numbers, things like that. You have to kind of look at it on a, at a macro view and not just in that specific situation sometimes. And I think that's important as well. Um, Gabriel, if there's anything else you want to kind of touch on, speak on at all, drop any more knowledge on us and uh, myself and the listeners, you can totally go ahead now. Stay persistent, stay charismatic. There you go. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Gabriel, it was super fun having you on the podcast. I really enjoy talking to you. You got to, you got to, you're definitely a personable person. You definitely, uh, you walk the walk. You don't just talk the talk in that regard. And I, I think that that really shines through well on this episode. So thanks so much for coming on. Um, 
Hope to stay connected with you. Hope to have you on the podcast again. Once Convertica is a multi, multi-billion dollar company. Um, don't forget about me then, Gabriel. Oh, don't worry. Don't worry. All righty. Thanks, man.